out there who uh, try to help God a little too much. You might think, okay, well, how could you go wrong helping God? Surely if you're helping God, um, you know, what could go wrong? Well, uh, like I said, there are some people who try, it seems, try a little too hard to help God. Let me give you an, an example. Uh, when I first got to Ukraine, our team started writing some Bible study material. And as we would be writing about different Bible stories, we would look out there for different um, historical tidbits or scientific facts or different things that we could add into the text to kind of make things more interesting or, or you know, su support or substantiate some of the things that we were writing about. And when we were writing about Adam being created from the dust of the earth, we came across this little snippet of text, and it was talking about how Adam was created from the dust, the dust is the dirt. When you look at the chemical makeup of a human being, you know, it's these different elements in, you know, this order, you know, from, from like most to least, I don't remember, you know, which ones were which. And they said, and it's amazing, like when you look at dirt, that's the exact same components in dirt in that order. And it was like, wow, you know, that that's kind of cool, you know, kind of this cool little scientific fact. Although my, uh, my baloney meter kind of was raised a little bit. I was like, wow, that sounds almost a little too good to be true. I mean, surely there are different types of dirt out there and different dirt are going to have different components. And so it seems hard to make just such a blanket statement and say that, that, you know, the components of man are the same as dirt. And so I went and I looked into it and turns out it, it was not true. You know, you have the chemical components of man. Uh, you know, there's more of this element and less of that one. And if you look at dirt, the same components are there, but they're not in the exact same uh, quantities. And so uh, we actually kept the, the text. We just changed it to make it where it was actually accurate. So that, that's an example of somebody. I don't know who originally wrote that text, but that's an example of somebody who was trying a little too hard to help God. And kind of whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, they either straight out lied or they stretched the truth. I don't know what. Um, so all that to say, just a little, uh, you know, uh, public service announcement. If you're scrolling through Facebook and you see some cutesy little um, scientific fact that seems to prove the accuracy of scripture, it might not be true. I mean, we, we tend to see those things and think, oh, this person is, is trying to uh, substantiate scripture or pr they're promoting my viewpoint. So surely what they're saying is true. Well, uh, unfortunately, um, that's not the case. And I've actually, unfortunately, gotten to be rather cynical because in writing, we wrote a decent amount of Bible study material. And I came across so many different things that were either not true or stretch. It's kind of like my almost my uh, default is when I see some of these cutesy little facts coming along, my, my, almost my default is to assume that they're false until they're, they're proven correct. So anyway, that, that's an example of somebody who's trying a little too hard to, to help God out. Another area that I feel like I see people sometimes doing that is when it comes to trying to get people into reading the Bible. Um, now, once again, that's a very worthy goal. You know, surely whatever it takes to get people reading the Bible is, is, is great, right? Well, you, know, you probably take a little too far. You know, some people will, will talk about the Bible and in, in trying to encourage people to read the Bible, they'll uh, say, oh, you know, the Bible, you know, it has, um, it's not just some dry old dusty book. You know, the Bible has intrigue and mystery and 
romance and, and adventure. And, you know, when you read these people's, you know, advertisements for the Bible, you would kind of expect to pick up the Bible and start reading it and expect it to just be like a page turner, like a New York Times bestseller novel or something like that. And while the Bible does contain those elements, it's not a novel. Uh, it wasn't intended to be one. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we have the author, John, um, telling why he wrote his book, which is probably why the whole Bible was written. Um, but John said, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So he's like, I didn't write everything that Jesus wrote, but the things I did write, I wrote that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So the Bible wasn't written to entertain, but to inform. Uh, but the goal of that information was not just so that we would be all smart and informed, but the goal of that information was to provoke a belief, a belief in Jesus being the Son of God, a belief that what he did on the cross was uh, enough to, for our salvation. That said, the Bible, um, while the Bible was not written to entertain, uh, it does, in fact, have many elements of an entertaining story. Um, so today I'd like to look at some of those elements that we find in the scripture. So the first element of a good story is um, what I call a, like a, we talk about happy endings. This is a happy beginning. Uh, it's interesting that almost all stories start out with things being good or at peace or in a good place. Uh, now, sometimes you'll pick up a book and you'll open it up and it just like, you just get dropped right into the problem. Um, but generally speaking, there's this uh, understanding or eventually you'll get to where the, the story will explain some of the backstory. You realize that this was not always the case. There was a time when the kingdom was at peace and everything was nice. And then the bad guy came in or the dragon or something like that. Now we have this problem. We're dealing with this problem. And then, you know, the, the rest of the story is about resolving that problem. And then eventually we get back to this uh, state where everything's happy and at peace and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's interesting that even in our fallen world, the general assumption is that evil is the exception to the rule. Chaos is temporary. Uh, you know, things generally start out good. They generally are good. And then you may have evil for a time, but good will eventually prevail. Uh, and, and the Bible, we see that here in the Bible. You start out with the Bible, start out in Genesis, and the Bible starts out with everything being good. Uh, very good. Uh, Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So we start out with good. Um, but as I think we, I've talked with my daughters about um, before, while a good peaceful life is what we all want for ourselves and for our families, it doesn't make for a very interesting story. And so that's why anytime you pick up a book that's written to entertain, it's usually not very long before the uh, book introduces the, -na -na -na, the bad guy. Right? And so that's what we see in Scripture, too. We see we're not very far into Scripture. We're just two chapters. Actually, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 is where the bad guy is introduced. That's where Satan comes into the picture. 
Um, and this bad guy is not motivated by money or power or other things that motivate two-bit bad guys. This is a bad, bad guy. Um, he's also not some misguided tyrant like a Hitler or a Stalin who in some perverted way has kind of managed to convince himself that what he's doing is actually making the world a better place. No, Satan is, he's, he's the baddest of the baddies. Uh, he just wants to see the world burn. Uh, John 10.10 10 says, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's Satan for you. Or John 8.44 says um, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So that's the bad guy. Now, to be fair, you don't always have to have a bad guy. You know, if you pick a novel or a movie to watch, sometimes there isn't a bad guy. And so you really don't need a bad guy. But what you do need for, how, for a good story is a problem. And sometimes that problem is not a bad guy. Sometimes it could be, um, you know, something that isn't connected to a person at all. For example, you might have a story where the whole storyline revolves around perhaps someone's sickness. Somebody gets sick and, and the whole storyline revolves around, you know, the family or the person dealing with the problem of someone's sickness. Or uh, you could also have a story that revolves around something else, like, for example, the potato famine in Ireland. You know, that was a big problem that came in and people had to deal with that. And, you know, stories have been written about that time period where economic hardship comes in, people are forced to adapt, people are forced to respond and deal with this thing, and sometimes they're able to deal with it there, sometimes they immigrate to America. And so um, we see that in the Bible. We, we do have a bad guy in the Bible, but we also, even if we didn't have a bad guy, we have a problem. And the problem is called the flesh. Now you might say, okay, well, I, I would have said that the problem is sin. Well, sin is a big problem too. Uh, although arguably, if it wasn't for the flesh we wouldn't have sin. You know, if you look at the Garden of Eden, sin was the result of Eve's fleshly desires. She saw the fruit. She saw that it was beautiful. She saw that it was tasty. She saw that it was going to make her wise. And those desires, those God-given desires for beautiful things, for tasty things, for, for learning, knowledge, advancing yourself in the world... Um, those desires were the ones that got her into trouble. And we see uh, Paul echoing these, these thoughts in Romans, Romans 7, 18. He says, I know that in me, and then he clarifies and says, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. So the, the problem was not that Paul didn't know what he needed to do. The problem was his flesh. It was that he wasn't able to perform it. And I can empathize with Paul. You know, if it was just up to my flesh, if I just, you know, turned off the brain, um, you know, I'd probably sit around on the couch all day watching TV and eating pizza and ice cream. I mean, that's the flesh for you. The flesh only cares about what's fun, what feels good. We care about the here and now, and we really don't care about the future or even what's going to be happening five minutes from now. Uh, now, sometimes the flesh gets more sophisticated and, and it gets off the couch and it, it does bigger, grander things, but it's, it's just, you know, the same idea. We're doing this for me. We're doing this for, because it's going to make me feel good. Um, so, you know, some people, 
uh, watch Netflix all day and other people's build skyscrapers, but you know, it's, it's one in the same flesh that is, um, is involved there. And sometimes I like to joke and say that, you know, poor old Satan gets blamed for a lot more than he's actually responsible for. Uh, you know, I, sometimes we, we like to blame everything on Satan, on his demons, and they're out there causing all these problems and such. Uh, but I personally feel like if you were just today to go out there and vaporize Satan and all of his demons, I really don't think that things would improve that much. Uh, Satan definitely bears a lot of responsibility for the state that this world is in, but he's not the only party involved. We're, we are all uh, contributors to the mess, uh, some of us more and some of us less. So anyway, so you, you, if you're going to have a story, you have to have a problem. Sometimes it's a bad guy, sometimes it's a problem. Some stories, the problem kind of takes the form of more interpersonal drama. Uh, sometimes you, could, you might have a movie or a book where the whole book is uh, about people and their relationship and the way the relationship develops or maybe the relationships get damaged or something like that. And it's, you, can, you can create a story around that. And you see that in the Bible too. Uh, we have a bad guy. We have a problem, but even if we didn't have a bad guy and a problem, we still have relationship issues that need to be worked out. And once again, we see that right in the very beginning of Scripture with, in the Garden of Eden. You know, I mentioned that the reason we have sin is, that, is because of the flesh. Um, well, even before the flesh, there was another step in the slide down to sin, and that was a... A, uh, a doubt in the goodness of God. Because really, when you look at it, that's where the problem started. When Eve started doubting that God was really good, that he was looking out for her interests, that's when she started to think, okay, if God's not watching out for me, I got to look out for number one. And so how am I going to take care of number one here? Ah, there's that fruit there. It's pretty. It looks like it'll taste good. It'll make me wise. I'm going to have to take my future in my own hands because I can't trust God to take care of me because I feel like he's holding, he's, he, he doesn't have my back. He's, he's holding out on me. He's, he's holding back something that's good for me. And so I'm going to have to get out there and, and take care of things myself. And so that's in a sense where all the trouble started. Now you go back one step farther to Satan, but you know, this is kind of where the slide really started. This is where mankind started going south. And if you look at Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 6, famous verse, says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If you're going to come to God, you have to believe that he exists and that he will reward that search, that he is a good God, that he's not going to kind of be like, come on, come on, come on, come to me, come to me. I'm going to catch you. And then whoops, sucker. No, I mean, that's not how God works. Um, but not everybody believes that. Some people believe that that's who God is, that he kind of coaxes you out and then hangs you out to dry. Um, and so really the story of the Bible is the story of God trying to woo mankind back to himself, back to believing in his goodness. And speaking of wooing, another element of a good story, depending on who you talk to, is a love story. I mean, there's a lot of books out there that are written about love. You know, sometimes that's the whole point of the whole story. Sometimes it's just one of the themes in a good story. Um, but the Bible has 
love stories. And there, there are individual love stories. Uh, for example, you have like the passionate Song of Solomon love story. You have the uh, forbidden love story of David and Bathsheba, although maybe you could call that a lust story instead of a love story. Um, you have like the, the love comes softly love story of, you know, Ruth and Boaz. Um, but you could also say that the whole Bible is a love story from beginning to end. Uh, God uses different word pictures to describe his relationship with mankind, but one of the word pictures that he uses is marriage. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have God, and he um, styles himself as the husband, and Israel is the wife that he has chosen. And unfortunately, that relationship was not a happy relationship. It was bumpy from the start. The, the Israelites were always going after other gods, and in the Old Testament, that's talked about as like spiritual adultery or spiritual fornication. And there's, you know, kind of this back and forth in that relationship and eventually gets, a, gets to the point to where it gets so bad that God says that, you know, I, I have divorced you. And yet at the same time, he's still calling Israel to come back to him. And so while that's not maybe a happy love story, that is a real love story. A real love story is when you have someone loving someone when they're not loved back. It's easy to love someone when they love you back. But when somebody doesn't return your love, then that's when it gets tough. Um, and Israel definitely had its unlovable moments, and we do too. Um, we all know that the, the church is considered to be the bride of Christ. And so in the New Testament, that, that's, the, that's kind of the love story that we're more familiar with, or the, the divine human love story that we're more familiar with is the one where you know, Christ is the husband, he's calling out his bride, those of us who... Um, believe, become a member of the bride of Christ, and one day Christ will come back for his bride, and we'll have the marriage supper, and all that kind of thing, and we'll all live happily ever after. And, uh, and so, uh, but as I said, the, the, the happy love stories are the ones where you have two people loving each other, the arguably the real love stories where you really see love demonstrated are the ones where somebody is loving someone, and they're not at least immediately, getting loved back. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, 46 says, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? It's like, that's easy. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God took the step. He started loving us, not just before we loved him back, but while we were still his enemies. He was loving us all the way back in those days when we were still fighting against him, when we were still calling him names, when we didn't trust him, he was loving us. And so the whole story of scripture from beginning to end is God loving the unlovable. And while it may not be the most entertaining love story, it is in some ways the ultimate love story. All right, so the next element of a good story is mystery. Now, Nowadays, we have a whole genre of, of literature that is the mystery genre. Uh, but the Bible is a little different. It's not your classic whodunit mystery. It's not like you open the Bible and, oh, somebody committed a crime. And then over the course of the Bible, you're uh, trying to figure out how to figure out who committed the crime. But there are parallels. Uh, in, a, in a modern mystery, you start out with some knowledge. It's like, okay, we've had a crime committed. We have these clues, but we don't know who did it. And then over the course of the book, you get more pieces of the puzzle, and you become more enlightened. And so then by the end of the book, you know who done it, and how they did it, and the whole nine yards. 
uh, in the Bible, it's the same, it's, it's different, but it's the same process. We start out in the Garden of Eden. We have a problem. It's like, what is God going to do about this problem? Well, we don't know. He's got a plan, but he didn't just reveal his whole plan in the Garden of Eden. He, if you will, he kind of um, played one card, but he kept the rest of them close to the vest. And so over the course of scripture, we get more pieces of the puzzle and it becomes more clear what his plan was. We, we get a better idea for uh, what he's doing. And a mystery really is just a hidden truth. Uh, it's a truth that is not common knowledge to everyone. And there are, the Bible talks about different mysteries and there, there are different mysteries in the Bible, but the main one is the one that we've mentioned, which is God's plan to redeem mankind. And Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right, so that's the mystery or the mystery element. The next element here is one that you're probably familiar with if you like action stories or action movies. And this is the secret mission. <laughs> so, like I said, if you, if you like action stories, you, you, I'm sure you've, you've seen more than, more than one of these, these secret missions. And sometimes these missions are short-term secret missions. You know, you just kind of have to put the disguise on and you get into the enemy installation or the bank or whatever, and you do what you got to do and you get out. Uh, sometimes it might not, there might not be disguises involved. Sometimes it's more of you know, there's a pilot that's been down behind enemy lines, and so you get the special ops, and they get all suited up in their gear, and they get in the helicopters, and they fly over and drop in and get the guy and get back out again. Sometimes uh, secret missions are long-term secret missions, like when a spy goes to a foreign country, and they're there for years or decades even, living a normal life while still spying for their country. And the secret mission in the Bible is more of that, the last one, kind of a long-term secret mission. You have a situation where mankind was in bad shape and they needed to be rescued. God wanted to rescue mankind, but he couldn't do it as God. He had to do it as a man. And so the secret mission begins, or it kicks into high gear uh, in a little village in Nazareth when you have a young girl who gives God the green light to use her womb as the insertion point for the secret agent. That's a little different way of saying it than we usually say it. So nine months later, the secret agent emerges, not as some, you know, muscle spy agent guy with secret gear, but as a little baby, just a little baby. Um, and while there was some localized fanfare around his birth with the angels and all that kind of stuff. For the most part, his cover wasn't blown. Most people had no idea who he was. And while that little baby was God, he was also a human. He, he wasn't just dressed up as a human, like spies are sometimes. They dress up as somebody else. He actually was a human. He was fully human. He grew up as just another Jewish boy, doing the normal boy things. He became another carpenter, regular Jew. You wouldn't have looked at him and thought that he was anything out of the ordinary. Uh, he felt all the things that we feel, pain and pleasure, love and hatred, sickness and health, joy and sadness. All the things that tempt us tempted him as well. But that's where the similarities between us end. 
Where I was lazy, he worked hard. Where I disobeyed my parents, he obeyed. Where I told a lie, he told the truth. Where I lusted, he obeyed the commandment not to covet. And so by the time he was 33 years old, that very ordinary man was very unordinary because he was without sin. He was completely different from anybody else in that one respect. He had no sin. So for the first time, there was somebody that I, as a sinful human being, could trade places with. For the first time, there was a perfect lamb that could take away the sins of the world. Mission accomplished. Well, almost. This brings us to the next element of a good story that we find in the Bible, and that is sacrifice. Nothing worthwhile is ever achieved without sacrifice. And once again, this is an element that you see in books, that where there is something worthwhile, it has to be fought for. And there's a lot of different ways that we express this. We have a lot of different sayings. Freedom isn't free. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And there's no victory without sacrifice. In some stories, wealth is what's sacrificed. In others, it might be someone's reputation, uh, their time and energy. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's personal happiness. And sometimes people are called on to make the ultimate sacrifice, laying down their life for the sake of others. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so this brings us to the next element of a good story that we find in the Bible, and that is the hero. And there are a lot of different kinds of heroes out there, if you read books or watch movies. Sometimes the hero is just what we call the main character of the story. Sometimes the hero is the one who gets the girl. Sometimes the hero is the one who slays the dragon. Sometimes you have to slay the dragon to get the girl. Um, in some stories, the hero is the one who can rob the bank and get away with it. Sometimes the hero is the secret agent who completes the mission. Regardless, there's one thing that all heroes have in common, and that is that when push comes to shove, the hero is the one who gets the job done. When all the sunshine patriots, as they called them back in Revolutionary War days, when all the sunshine patriots have melted away, the hero is the one who's still standing firm. Or as we say, the tough keep going when the going gets tough. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus looked at that swirling cesspool of sin that he was going to have to take on himself, as he was about to take that first step down the path that was going to lead to a shameful, torturous death, he didn't want to go on. He didn't feel like it. This was not something that he wanted to do, even. He didn't want to go on. So he contacted headquarters, requesting permission to abort the mission, sir. Permission denied. It's the only way. You're their only hope. And then Jesus pulled himself up by the bootstraps and did what had to be done. 
And that's why Jesus is the hero. Heroes aren't born, they're made. Jesus was born as the son of God, but that's not why he's the hero. He was made the hero in the fires of affliction. He was made the hero because he overcame sin. One, by living a sinless life, and two, by his death on the cross. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, that's the Garden of Gethsemane there, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. So God heard his prayer. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect. So heroes are born, not made. Or sorry, they're made, not born. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. The next story element is what I call the darkest hour. I feel like every story or most stories, have this element. When all seems to be lost. And there are several of those moments in the scripture. First one is in the Garden of Eden. God creates this perfect creation and very quickly everything goes south. And it looks like all is lost. Uh, then you also have before Noah's flood. Things had gotten so bad to where all of civilization was just following after the lust of the flesh, and it was only Noah. There's only one family left in the whole world. It was a pretty dark hour. Then you also have the exile to Babylon. That was when God had called out a nation to be his special people and had given them his laws, given them instruction, given them special protection, special blessing, but they kept turning their backs on him, and it got so bad he had to sell them into slavery to Babylon. It's another dark hour. And then in the future, there will be the tribulation when Satan himself is ruling and reigning on this earth. That'll be another dark hour. But arguably the lowest of all the low points were those few days when Christ was in the tomb. For millennia, you had God shepherding the messianic line. He'd called out a nation to be his special people, he was preparing them for the coming of the Messiah, who finally came and lived, once again, a perfect life, a sinless life, did many miracles, and then inexplicably had allowed himself to be killed? What? That doesn't make sense. You know, surely all is lost. Our champion's dead. It's hopeless. But... The darkest hour is just before dawn. Up until this point, death had always been the end. As long as you were alive, there was still hope. Anything was possible. But once you were dead, it was game over. You know, it didn't matter. All, all the Old Testament heroes of the faith, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Samson, David, Elisha, all of them were eventually overcome by death. But... Three days after the cross, it became apparent that Jesus was not your average Bible hero. There's a new sheriff in town. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's going to clean up this town. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but he's a coming. 
And that brings us to the last element that all good stories have, which is a happy ending. <laughs> Once again, it's remarkable that in this, foreign, in this fallen world, um, there's this understanding that good always wins. It's like, where does that come from? Sometimes it may be a long and coming, but there's always a happy ending. And lo and behold, that's exactly what we see in Scripture. Revelation 21.2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then skipping down to verse 4, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Sounds like a happy ending to me. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And those words, even so, come, Lord Jesus, just happen to be the last words of the Bible. As I said at the beginning, the Bible wasn't written to entertain. It was written that we might know that Jesus is the Savior and that we might believe on him. And there's a lot of books that you could read that would be a lot more entertaining than the Scripture. But the interesting thing is that once, um, once you've read the Bible, the best stories that man can come up with seem like just kind of a cheap imitation of the real thing. You know, where are you going to find a villain that's worse than Satan? Where are you going to find a, a hero that's braver or more selfless, or that who went through more than what Jesus went through? You know, where are you going to find a greater sacrifice than the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Both from the perspective of Christ, and that was a sacrifice to him, but think about it from the perspective of a father. I mean, I feel like you... I mean, I have a hard enough time letting my kids go for a simple medical procedure. And so I can only imagine what it would be like to be a father and to let your son, to send your son to go through unimaginable pain and suffering for someone that doesn't even like you, that someone who doesn't trust you, who thinks that you're the bad guy. Where are you going to find a sacrifice greater than that? Where are you going to find a better love story? I mean, yeah, you could probably find some love stories that are more romantic than the love story of the Bible, but where are you going to find a story where someone loved through more adversity to eventually turn the hearts of the prodigal children, if you will, back to the heart of the father? And where are you going to find a better happy ending? I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that. And so while the Bible may not be the most entertaining book ever written, I think we can probably all agree that it is the greatest story ever told. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your story. And at the same time, we thank you that this is not a story, just a story. You're not some good God that only exists in the imagination of an author out there somewhere, that you are the God of the universe, that you are the good God, and that this story is not some 
pipe dream out there that we wish would come true so that we could be a part of it. That it is, this, is, this, this story is reality. And Lord, thank you that you are the good father. Thank you that there is a happy ending that's coming. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made. Thank you for the mystery that was revealed that even before the foundation of the world, you knew we were going to go astray. You knew there was going to be a problem. You knew that there was going to be a mess. And you made provision to clean up the mess, to demonstrate your goodness and your love for us through the sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that we can have a part in this story, that you invite us to be a part of what you're doing in this world. Lord, you are good. We acknowledge that. We see that. We've seen it demonstrated. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the story that we get to be a part of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.